pray for your pastor as he recovers his strength and, and uh, recoups with the, the good medicines that are before him. And he's asked that I take us through this time of communion. So as we begin this new calendar year together, I think it's a good idea for us to start at the table. We can be sure that our focus is right at the table. We can be sure that our hearts are reset. That's where Paul tells us to do a reset of our hearts on heavenly things, a reset of our minds on heavenly things. And it's important for us to have our hearts and lives directed toward Christ and his purposes for us. And of course, many of us are pretty good at the reset thing, right? We break out the lists during the holidays and we write up new resolutions for what we want to do for the year. Some of you call them revolutions because they're a pretty big deal and you're going to take on new challenges. Many of these last just a few weeks, especially the diet plans. Um, But some last the entire year because they're well thought out, they're good habits, and they're important to improve and change our lives. By going through the exercise, we all end up admitting that there's room for improvement and that we can do it a little better. The problem with starting at the table is it's not about living. It's about dying. How in the world can a focus on the death of Christ, one who died for us, help us live better? I'd like to focus on just a couple of passages that have helped me in this regard. The first is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes, by the way, if you're looking for it, go to the middle of the Bible to Psalms and then go two books to the right. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And in this writing of Solomon, which, by the way, I was digging into just about a month ago as a part of a revolution that I started a couple of years ago to go through the Bible in two years. As a part of that, I'm walking through and I saw these passages at a particularly poignant time in my life. And God used these words to minister to me and to have me reflect appropriately in that particular time. Here's what Solomon says, 7 verse 1. A good name is better than a good ointment. And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Hmm. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. Because that is the end of every man. And the living take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And the mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. If given the choice, I would dare say that most people would rather go to a birthday party than they would to a funeral. Would you not agree? Solomon here says and advises differently. Why? Because sorrow can do more good for the heart than laughter can. By the way, the word heart is used four times in this passage, talking about the seat of our emotion, the seat of our decision-making, center of our lives. Solomon was certainly not a morose man with a gloomy lifestyle. After all, it was King Solomon who wrote many of the Proverbs describing joy and gladness and mirth and laughter. And... He was the one who wrote Song of Solomon, the greatest love poem between a man and a woman. Laughter can be like a medicine that heals the broken heart. But Solomon shows us that sorrow can be like nourishing food that strengthens the inner person. It takes both for a balanced life. 
But few people realize this. There is a time to laugh and a time to mourn. Let's begin with this sort of bizarre statement that Solomon makes, that the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. You can't separate this statement from the phrase at the beginning of the passage, which says a person's good reputation is like a fragrant perfume. In fact, there's a word play here. The word name is the word shem in Hebrew, and the word used for ointment here is shemen. So a name, a good name, is better than a good ointment, which you would apply to a wound or, or in a variety of different usages. Solomon was not contrasting birth and death here, nor was he suggesting that it's better to die than to be born, because you can't die unless you've been born, right? He was contrasting two significant days in a human experience. The day a person receives his or her name and the day when that name shows up in the obituary column. The life lived between these two events will determine whether that name leaves a lovely fragrance or a foul stench. And if a person dies with a good name, his or her reputation is sealed and the family need not worry. In that sense, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Of course, Solomon was assuming here that there were no hidden scandals involved in that person's death. One scholar from ancient days put it this way. Every man has three names. One his father and mother give him. One that others call him. And one that he acquires himself by reputation. So Solomon is seeking to communicate some important truths about how we Look at the perspective of life through the eyes of death. And he follows up with these statements, reminding his readers that death is the destiny of every man, so that the living should take this to heart. Down in verse 4, he says, The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. Isn't that interesting? Again, Solomon's not saying here we need to be preoccupied with death. Because that would be abnormal. But there is a danger that we may try to avoid confrontations with the reality of death. And as a result, not take it as seriously as we should. His father said it this way. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom in Psalm chapter 90. The preacher is not presenting us with an either or situation. You either have to be sorrowful for all of life or be joyful all of life. The Hebrew word for laughter in verse 3 actually points more toward Laughter of derision or scorn. While there is a place for healthy humor in our lives, we have to be very careful and beware of the frivolous laughter that is often found in the house of mirth. When people jest about death, for example, it's usually evident that they're afraid of it and they're really not prepared to meet it. Might I just interject a sidebar here to our children and young people? This is a very dangerous day in which we live in this particular regard. Because there are a lot of people who are seeking to grab your ear in this area of humor. And there's a whole lot of it that we really shouldn't be laughing at. Things that are inappropriate, that are unseemly, that are sexually tainted or colored, that really have to do more with the sins of this world. And quite naturally, we would expect that to be because our society is tainted by sin and marred by the darkness of the evil one. And so their humor would come forth from that, right? But that's not what we're supposed to laugh at. What many of you don't realize, guys, is that 
Laughing at sin is one of Satan's tools to get you comfortable with it. The old poem said it this way. First laugh, then pity, then embrace. You be careful what you laugh at. Don't be known as a fool in your mirth. Well, one of the things that I'm called upon to do quite often as a, as a minister of the gospel is be involved in death and dying and the proceedings of individuals who have passed on. And so I'm, I'm very much involved in probably eight to ten funerals a year, for example. There are a lot of opportunities for me to come in contact with and try to minister to those who are grieving. But I want to share with you some lessons that our family has learned from a little different kind of grieving. And in sharing my heart and the parallel passages that that I want you to see with me in just a moment, I think there's some things we can learn that Christ himself taught us as he prepared for his death. Just a little history. Um, it's just been in this last few months that our family has has undergone quite a journey as we've we've come to grips with a, a very significant loss in our lives. Carol's parents, as we affectionately call them, Mama Sue and Pops, uh, have uh, loved the Lord and served him for many, many years. And just in May... They began a new journey that none of us anticipated as an aneurysm seized her body and just about took her life. She survived a a very difficult surgery, but lost the use of her legs and over about four months was in and out of the hospital 11 times, just struggling to recover from the, the, the racking pain of this surgery. It was about October that we got together with pops and, and we talked about the journey that they were on and he shared with us, you know, this is just really too much for us to do on our own. So we'd like to move down by you. We had made the offer for them to come and allow us to be able to help care for them. And so we prepared ourselves and began making some arrangements here in town and sorting out some things. And we had a fairly grand plan that we had put in place that was all going to kind of culminate around Thanksgiving. We would move out with the family for a week or so and help pack them up Carol would fly out here with her parents and one of my children while the rest of the children and several grandchildren would go out and then be a part of a packing process to move the family from Kansas City to here. And we'd all get together on Thanksgiving and celebrate a very difficult move and then try to help her be restored to health in the grand state of North Carolina. The plans of a man's hands are laid before the Lord, but it's the Lord who directs his steps. And God had a completely different plan than we did. You see, the Wednesday before that Friday, we were going to fly. The doctor detected something in a test that he wasn't real comfortable with. So instead of flying on Friday, Mama Sue was in the hospital. And on Saturday, the doctors informed her that she had an advanced stage of cancer. Seven days after that, on the morning after Thanksgiving, Saturday morning after Thanksgiving, Mama Sue went to heaven. Shocking. Painful, difficult. You can use a lot of words to describe the emotions that were in our hearts as we walked through this uh, jolting time. And honestly, as I've kind of weighed the emotions of my heart and spent time processing all of this, both for the family and for myself, uh, I've seen some things and some insights in scripture that I think are important for all of us to be able to look in upon today. As we come to the table, though they're a bit uncomfortable to discuss If you'll bear with me, I'll bear with you, and we'll kind of work through this together. 
Because it is important for us sometimes to look in upon death and learn from it and glean that which we can to make our lives strong. And in fact, the Lord Jesus himself walks us through this as only he can. So turn to Matthew chapter 26, if you would. Most of the lessons we'll learn will come from there. While you're turning there, however, I'm going to just read the first lesson, which actually comes 10 chapters before this. It's a familiar passage in Matthew chapter 16, where Jesus has gathered with his disciples and he spends time foretelling his death. 21 of 16 says this, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, God forbid it, Lord, you shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me for you are not setting your mind on God's interests but man's. Now this thing of death is, is a very interesting phenomenon. It's a, it's a hard concept for us to get our hands around. But at its essence, death is simply separation. Physically, when we die, we are separated from physical life. And our bodies no longer function as they did because death has separated us from life. Spiritually, we are separated from God for eternity. A much more foreboding death. For that separation has eternal consequences. So when Jesus was predicting his death, it was something that his father had revealed to him that he was submitting to and he was clear upon. And it was a part of God's plan for him. But it wasn't a part of Peter's plan. Peter didn't like it. He didn't want to be a part of hearing about Jesus being separated from them. He wanted Jesus to march into Jerusalem and take over and rule the city. And be a part of leading God's people for generations to come as the Messiah, the King. It was a different plan than he had. And this leads to our first lesson. The first lesson is accept the reality of death when faced with it. For when God clarifies to our hearts that death is imminent, we need to face it with faith. Never forget Hearing Carol tell us about sweet mama Sue when the doctor came and told her about the fact that she had the cancer. She looked at him and she said, okay, that makes sense. And this leads to the second lesson that I would share. In the next few minutes, the doctor left the office and she told Carol, get your pad and pen, honey. Come on over here. She drew near with her daughter and with her husband and for about two hours just poured her heart out about things that were important to her, things that were important for them to know that she wanted them to have knowledge of. And she shared with them those intimate truths. Much like the Lord Jesus did when he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. John chapters 15 through 17 give us an insight to Jesus pouring his heart out to his disciples, preparing them for the time in which they were going to be separated by death. He told them of things they needed to know so that they would be prepared. John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe in me. I'll be back. I'll be back. He prepared their hearts by letting them know of the comfort of the Holy Spirit who would come and rule in their hearts. He prepared them well for what was happening. And you know, for some of us 
who have experienced death in our families, that death has been very sudden and shocking, perhaps an accident that took an individual immediately. And there wasn't an opportunity to go through that kind of preparation. But for many, for most really, there are at least hours, if not days and sometimes weeks for us to do this kind of thing, to prepare ourselves for that which is to come. Jesus exemplified that. And we saw here, in our lives, this precious one who, by the way, had herself given that kind of counsel as a counselor and a pastor's wife to dozens of individuals through the years, many who were facing death themselves. She sat them down and she walked them through how to get their affairs in order. She took them to Moses' example in Deuteronomy and showed them how Moses prepared the children of Israel well for his departure, prepared Joshua for his departure put his financial house in order and then put a blessing upon the people of God before he walked up that hill. It's a powerful image. And one that I'll never forget as through the rest of that week, this dear lady spent time with children, grandchildren, her brother, sharing her love for them. She didn't know how long she had, but she didn't care. She knew she was going home. So she got her house in order. The next lesson that I see as we go back into Matthew 16 or Matthew 26, and we'll come back to the Lord's Supper at the end of our time. But in verse 30, they had just finished the time in which they had gathered around the table, this memorial service of Christ's life, a prophetic memorial, as it were, because Jesus knew he was going to die and he laid before them a beautiful memory for them to hold on to. Verse 30 says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Why did they sing, you might ask? I know, I know, because we always sing after communion before we leave, right? Well, that's true, but this was the first one. (laughs) So why did Jesus choose to sing there? I think it leads to another very important lesson. God uses music to minister to our souls in times of trouble and need. If you ever wonder why we go to all the trouble we go to, to put instruments in place and tune voices and work together on songs, God, according to Paul's words in in Colossians chapter three, God uses the words of Christ and allows them to dwell in us richly as we sing them into one another's hearts. So in a time of crisis, we can sing to one another And God ministers to us in our time of despair. I'll never forget gathering around Mama Sue's bed. Time after time, she'd say, sing, kids. And we'd start singing hymns of praise, songs of joy and rejoicing. Sometimes I'd just kind of sit by her side, which I have numbers of times, and just sing some of her favorite songs and allow them to to just kind of pour over her spirit. She would relax and, and just rejoice in what God was preparing her for. Music ministers in those times. There's another lesson just a few verses later. Verse 36, Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and two sons of Zebedee and he began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. The lesson is this, prayer matters even when you know the outcome. Can I say that again? Prayer matters even when you know the outcome. 
Many during a time of crisis like this pray only for healing or for a different outcome to come about. And sometimes God does grant that and he grants weeks or months or years to our life. But ultimately, when God has said, I want to be with my child again and I want them to come home. As he had shared with Christ, who knew that within the next 36 hours, he was on his way to a cross. He wanted those closest to him to pray with him. What do you pray for? You pray for God's will to be done in that person's life. You pray for strength to endure the valley of the shadow of death. You pray for God to encourage those who are awaiting that separation and will be impacted by it. You pray for God to use the death, even the way it comes about, for his glory. That's difficult, but it's important. And I'll never forget the times of prayer we had with Susan. The next few verses share yet another lesson for us, a very important one. And he went a little beyond them, verse 39, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus, we're given an inroad into the prayer that he prayed here. And as he prayed, he was struggling with the plan and asked the father if it would be possible, let it pass But ultimately, it is your will that I am after. And it is important, my friends, to understand that we need to submit to God's plan, remembering that we're not in control. He is. That is a hard lesson. I'll I'll never forget the, the lightning bolt moment I had. I was still on this side making plans to connect with Carol and getting flight plans for the kids because we all decided to go out at Thanksgiving. It was such a good move to be able to be with the family there. But all of a sudden, my mind started whirring with details. Well, what what are we going to do when it's time for school to start back up again after Thanksgiving? And oh my goodness, what about Christmas suite? How are we going to get all of that done? And there's so many details and I've got a new team and they're going to need me here. And how is all that going to come about? You know what would be really good? And I actually verbalized these words. You know what would be really good? It would be great if Mama Sue could just wait until at least Thursday or Friday after sweet. Because then, and I caught myself, I said, what in the world are you doing? You're not in control of anything. (laughs) But we do that, don't we? Many times when we're faced with some crisis, especially that that would be impending death, We grab hold of the controls and we try to turn the ship and manipulate. And If I can get a few more hours here, a few more days there, if I can do this, if I can change that. It's not in our control. And Jesus taught us, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. We submit ourselves to the Father's plan. Two more lessons I want to share This one I'll let you study on your own, but you'll remember in John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27, Jesus is on the cross and he looks down and he sees John and he says, John, behold your mother, woman, behold your son. We've already talked about this to a a little bit of an extent. Jesus took the time to put the affairs of his family in order and care for them to make sure that their needs were met. Jesus wasn't thinking about himself in that hour. He was caring for the needs of others. 
Yet another lesson that comes out of this passage or out of the life of Christ is that we learn how to grieve from Jesus. There are two passages that I want to refer to. One of them, many of you children know, is the shortest verse in the Bible. John eleven thirty five, which says, Jesus wept. And how significant that is, that the God-man sorrowed with those who had experienced loss. God allows us to grieve. God allows us and joins us in our grief as loss overwhelms our hearts. And even though Jesus knew the outcome of that story was going to be a resurrection, he grieved with those who he loved so much. But there's another insight that comes ironically after Jesus died. Three days later, we know what happened. But the two men who were walking on the road to Emmaus had not been informed yet. And they're having a conversation about the tragedy that had just happened in Jerusalem. The awful passing of the one who they thought would be the Messiah. And this man walks up beside them and gets involved in their conversation. Luke 24 gives us an insight to that conversation. And here's here's what it says after Jesus walks up beside them and they talk about the things. He says, what things? As if he didn't know. And they share with him what had happened. And here's what he says to them in verses 25 through 27. And he said to them, oh foolish men and slow of heart to believe. You're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Now I want you to get a grip on what just happened. The son of God, who is the word of God made flesh, takes the word of God and brings comfort to individuals who are grieving a loss. And in doing so, he clarifies their perspective on eternity. It was just a few hours later. They invited him into their house. He broke bread with them. They realized he was the Christ. And that those words that he had just spoken now came to life. The word of God ministers comfort. Because the word of God reveals to us the truth about the word of God, who is Christ And all that he has done to bring about victory over death. See, if we did not have these words, then we would sorrow as others who have no hope. If we did not have these words, then we would not know that now is Christ risen from the dead. And therefore, as he has risen, so can we conquer death. We would grieve a complete loss because that would be the end of things. But because Christ is risen... This word brings hope. And the lesson is this. The word of God brings healing and comfort in times of loss. And I got to tell you, the word of Christ was precious to us as a family through that week. As one passage after another. Ironically, one of the passages that gave us greatest comfort was, I believe, one of the three chapters in Psalms called the Hallel, which were actually designated as the songs that Jesus and the disciples sang as they went to the Mount of Olives. Psalm 116, which talks about the fact that we shall now walk among the land of the living. And we believe with all our hearts 
the Mama Sue, because she placed her faith and joy in Christ Jesus. Though she lost temporary use of her legs, is now walking in the land of the living. She's rejoicing in heaven. She's sitting on that park bench she talked about, talking to Jesus. She's in a whole new world. See, death is not a problem for the believer. It's simply a problem for the flesh of the believer who hasn't come to grips with the reality of heaven yet. And that's all of us. Because we get caught up like Peter did in the plan. This is not in the plan. I'm supposed to be spending time with Mama Sue this week, walking around the lake. That's not the plan. Come on. But guess what? He wanted her at the river of life. Not a lake down here in Lockmere. It's a whole new reality, folks. As we understand the, the joy of heaven. And as we walk through Revelation, we're seeing it step by step and, and verse by verse. We'll see an incredible picture of heaven coming up before us. Guess what? We only know that because of God's word. Well, you may say, these are nice sentiments. But I didn't come here to attend a seminar on dying and to hear you talk about your own personal walk. I came here because I need to get ready to live. And this is a new year and I've got life to live. And and I'm young. I've got lots of things to do. Lots of things to see. Exciting things ahead of me. Really? Do you know what tomorrow holds for you? Are you sure? Do you know you have 24 years? left or months or weeks or days or 24 hours? Do you have a guaranteed contract extension by God that gives you three more years? None of us know whether the breath we breathe today will be heavenly or in eternity in another place. And so as we gather around this table, we gather with the perspective of Christ who said, I want to prepare you not only for my living, but for my dying so that you can be prepared not only to live, but to die. For if we come to God in Christ, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's and there is great joy in that which we have. But if we have not prepared and if we are not certain of our eternal destiny. And if we've not prepared ourselves and those who are around us for that opportunity, then folks, we're going to miss out. And that would be the last lesson that comes from this. Jesus was ready to die. You remember the words of John 17 when he said, now father, the time has come glorify your son that your son may glorify you. This is it. I've done the work you've called me to do and I'm on the way to heaven. I'll never forget Mama Sue gathering us around the bed one more time. She looked around the room and she looked at every person in that room and she said, you're all here. Happy Thanksgiving. She shared a couple of intimate phrases with her husband and went to sleep and woke up in heaven. And one of the final things she said to one of her grandsons was this. This is not the end. This is not the end. I'll go on. She wasn't talking about death. She knew she was going to die. She knew heaven was coming. And we can gather at this table today because of the joy 
of salvation that delivers us from death. So as our deacons prepare to serve the elements, I just want to call you to a time of reflection. Perhaps you've come here today and you're steadily planning what life is going to look like for this next year. And that's not a bad thing. But it's also not a bad thing to prepare for what God may do in your life as well. Perhaps you've recently experienced deep sorrow. God's wrapping his loving arms around you and helping you come to grips with that. And maybe you're struggling with it and there's bitterness in your heart. Submit to God's will and allow him to minister to you. Perhaps you're facing a difficult season for you know of an impending loss. Wrap your arms around those loved ones and perhaps share some of these things that you've heard today that may encourage and comfort and strengthen and prepare them. And maybe you've never trusted Christ. The elements at this table won't save you. Only Christ can save you. So the greatest thing you can do, rather than taking these elements, is place your heart and life in his hands by faith, praying to him to deliver you. 